Welcome to App Talk with Uptick. Each week, we dive into the nitty gritty of how to grow mobile apps and games. We speak with industry experts about specific strategies, tools, and tactics they use to find success. And we keep you up to date with emerging news and trends in the ever changing mobile app ecosystem. My name is Xander Gosta, growth lead here at Uptick. And joining me today are my co host, Warren Woodward, co founder of Uptick. And our guest, Mark Laranger, co founder of Bravo Capital. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Cool. Um, our first section is industry insights, where we do a deep dive on mobile industry news. Um, we do have a slight plug at the top. Warren, do you want to start with that piece? Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to give a shout out that uh, that we are going to be doing a webinar next week uh, put on by Singular. We're going to be doing a uh, deep dive on some of the changes in impact expected with iOS 15. And uh, I believe that webinar is on uh, October 6th. So uh, definitely um, check that out. It's it's free um, and should have some good content for how uh, iOS ecosystem is changing. Great. Um, so we've got quite a few articles to jump into. Yeah, so a lot to cover this week. Um, the first story that we wanted to cover, this was a blog put out by uh, Facebook. The title of the blog is Navigating Change and Improving Performance and Measurement, which is a long convoluted title. But um, the takeaway of this is uh, Facebook is starting to acknowledge how some of the iOS ecosystem changes are going to be impacting their uh, profits moving forward. Um, and uh, there's kind of two things that we wanted to call out from this article. So one was, um, you know, we touched last week that, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, that, that uh, Facebook uncovered that they actually weren't tracking um, iOS conversions correctly, um, and they elaborate on this a little bit more in this article. Um, and one of the quotes was that they were estimating an aggregate that uh, Facebook was under-reporting um, iOS web conversions by approximately 15%. Um, but I think the more notable change here is they're kind of um, giving a signal about uh, how uh, these changes are going to impact their profits. And the, the quote we pulled out here was, uh, we expected increased headwinds from platform changes. Notably, the recent iOS updates have greater impact in the third quarter compared to the second quarter. Um, and this is in line with you know, what we've been seeing kind of on the front lines for ourselves and uh, other peers in the space of just companies you know, pulling back their Facebook ad spend um, with some of the new limitations in place uh, from the recent iOS changes. So this is just kind of the next chapter in the same story we've been tracking over time. Um, Xander, I think you also come through this article. Do you have do you have any thoughts on kind of Facebook's public facing uh, statements about this? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the real. You sort of touched on this, but it's the real first admission that they're saying, well, you know, the changes that Apple made are having material impact on our business. And I guess they sort of warned it early on, but now they're saying that this is really happening now. Um, one of the other things that is a little bit interesting is they talked about you know ex what they're working on in order to improve this. And one of the things ties into our next episode, which is our next article, which is they're talking about how they're going to potentially start leaning more heavily on conversion modeling, which is something that uh, I don't think either of us are particularly big fans on, um, is a way to make up for the fact that they aren't able to get as much accurate as much accuracy with the iOS 14.5 plus changes. So uh, we'll, it'll be interesting to see how that works. Um, yeah, I think I, we would really like to be have a single source of truth for our attribution. It would be nice if it was Apple. It doesn't seem like their solution is great. Um, so 
You gonna say something? No, I was gonna say, Mark. I know, um, you know, with with Bravo's role in the ecosystem um, and and providing funding for uh, developers to scale their apps through UA. Um, I know your position is a little different from ours on the front lines, but have you been seeing any sort of like macro trends in um, in where your partners are scaling their apps? Have you also been seeing this from the funding side of things of of more funds migrating to the Android ecosystem? Yeah, so you know, from a from a, from like a migration from you know iOS to Android, I, I haven't seen that necessarily anecdotally. I could probably dig into the data to, to see if there's there's more evidence there, but but we are you know. Generally speaking, uh, it's very hard for companies to spend profitably on UA right now, uh, and it's it's, right. it's only gotten harder. And and the companies that relied very heavily on Facebook and Instagram have been trying to diversify for quite a while. Um, but that's also challenging for 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 a variety of reasons, um, whether it's attribution um, or just the lack of scalability on some of the other platforms. Um, you know, in terms of like what we see in the data as it relates to Facebook, you know, the trend of declining spend on Facebook, which in our system includes Instagram, um, that's been going on for for months and months now. And so the exactly. fact that Facebook's finally acknowledging it. Uh, it's sort of like, okay, it, it became inherently obvious that that this has been a, a challenge for a while. And, and so Facebook acknowledging it is maybe a step in the right direction. But, um, you know, what we see is a really precipitous drop off in spend on Facebook and Instagram across our portfolio. Um, you know, one thing I'm, I'm curious what, you know, uh, what, what you guys have seen, but but from 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 our side, and I've had conversations with some of the attribution uh, providers as well, just as far, you know, it, it seems that the large spenders are less impacted than the smaller spenders. Uh, the larger spenders have the technology, have the teams, have the sophistication to adapt more rapidly to changes or to take advantage of even minuscule adjustments in, in, into these platforms. Whereas mid-market and smaller spenders, you know, where most of the companies that are taking funding from Bravo, you know, they're they're ranging from let's say 100k a month. In revenue to about a you know a million a month in revenue. We have some customers doing as much as three or four, but on average, it's you know 100k a month in revenue to, to one million. Um, those are sort of long tail and mid market spenders uh, as it relates to 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 these platforms. And even with it, if you segregated our portfolio, the smaller and the mid market, the mid market seem to be less impacted by the smaller spenders. And you know what you'd like to see is an, is an ecosystem where the the up and coming companies uh, don't have a you know disadvantage because that creates this power curve that's even more acute where all the power you know is in the hands of the largest spenders. Have you seen anything similar with, amongst your portfolio or with you with your budgets? You know the smaller budgets being more or less impacted uh, than the larger budgets, for example. Is that anything that you've tried to tackle as it relates to to the Facebook platform particularly? So that's a that's a really interesting data point, Mark. And I, I think there that something that's coming to mind in thinking about the kind of the profile of of a larger developer versus uh, like an indie developer or startup is like what the func what's the function of of that spend relative to their business right? right because for a smaller company your ua is usually really tied to your cash flow like if that's generating profits like it's you or you know what the the expected profits are going to be um you know that's very tied to your business decisions for Uptick, we work with companies from super small developers to some of the largest in the space. And um, I wouldn't say this is tied to up our clients specifically, but just conversations that we've had. Generally, the bigger the brand, more established the company, the kind of the more the momentum there is of like 
just keep spending, just keep right. the users coming yeah. in. Whereas mm -hmm. like for a smaller developer, it's like, well, how's our cash flow looking? Like our, if our returns are getting softer, then we need to like pull down right now. Um, that, that there's going to be a lot more re reactiveness yeah. uh, and more defensive spending, I think, from those smaller publishers that are more um, sensitive to their near-term profits and cash flow. Yeah, it's look, also I mean, you've got these these really big companies that that are <clears throat> that are spending to a you know a, a one to two year break even mark. Yes, right. and, and and that means they have a massive balance sheet that can support that that you know subsidize that sort of net negative cash flow for one or two years. You know, some of the larger cu customers that we talk to, they're comfortable spending against a two year break even. You know, because they have great retention, mostly subscription businesses, right? Like hyper casual games are, are certainly not doing that. But um, you know, it's 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 a great point that you know the sensitivity to changes uh, is much is felt much more acutely on a cash flow perspective, and um, that does relate also to funding, which we can talk about later. But um, you know, I was curious if it it also has to do with expertise or you know even more consolidation that we're seeing in the industry, right? Like there's a, there's a tremendous amount of consolidation. There are these platforms that are multi, you know, multi-purpose platforms now that own attribution, that own ad networks, and have publishing houses in, you know, in in inside, um, and and you know that makes it even harder for some of these smaller companies uh, to compete. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's also just definitely been a trend that I've witnessed over my time in the industry, which is just like there's a point where UA become is. There's a point where if you use UA to, uh, to generate revenue for your business, you get really good at it. And the people who are the best at it are on the lower end of that overall spend curve. And once you hit like the, the breakout where you're like a publicly traded company, there's just so much cash flushing through the system and more in a sort of a reference to this top where the day-to-day -day metrics become less important. And it's just like, oh, well, in aggregate, we're still making money. So just keep plowing money in, even if it's not super efficient spend. Right. Or a focus on just say top line revenue. Yep. You know, right. when you when you're uh, when you're bootstrapping, you don't really care about top line revenue. You're just trying to maximize like the you know that margin that you're actually claiming. Yeah, yeah, and and you know the funding environment, whether it's it's non dilutive funding or or equity funding, there's tremendous amounts of money going around on the equity side at the right. you know amongst the leaders, and so those companies can afford to spend at a deficit because there's you know a huge number of investors that are banging down their doors and want to pour more money. And even if, right. even if, they, even if their unit economics are negative permanently, you know, right. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> well, I know we've got a lot to cover this week. Xander, do you want to go on to your next couple of stories here? Yeah. So this is a, a strangely similar article, but it's from a different part of the olig uh, oligarchy. Um, so this um, article is entitled the future of attribution is data driven and it's by Google. It's a blog article by Google. Um, there's a lot of double speaking in this article, so get ready. Um, here's a quote, conversion modeling powered by machine learning allows you to preserve measurement even when your cookies, oh, there's a little bit of a preamble, but basically conversion modeling powered by machine learning allows you to preserve measurement even when cookies or other identifiers aren't present. Data-driven attribution in Google uses advanced machine learning to more accurately understand how each marking touchpoint contributed to a conversion while respecting users' privacy. As industry continues to evolve, last-click attribution will increasingly fall short of advertisers' needs. The most successful marketers will switch to data-driven approach. Okay, so what does this mean? Google has long had this long had this stance, at least for part of their products, which they're rolling out to a broader set of their products, which is saying, we're going to use machine learning to model attribution for our channel as opposed to last click. Now, for a long time, the industry standard has been last click. This has been generally measured by the MMPs, mobile measurement partners, people like AppSlyer, Singular, Adjust, et cetera. Um, Apple is now saying, or sorry, Google is now saying, in their systems, they are going to, by default, opt everyone into conversion modeling, which is basically saying, Based on our machine learning models, we believe we are responsible for these installs. Now, there are very serious issues with this, uh, two, two core ones. One is you're now trusting the network with your attribution. 
that is obviously a conflict of its interest. These are not unbiased arbiters. They have a bias towards attributing themselves a conversion so they can charge you for it. Um, and you can actually already see this in the data. If you look at Google model conversions versus Apple scan data, or previously in the pre iOS 14.5 world in the tracker data. All right, that's, that's one major issue with it is that this is they're gonna bias this towards them. The second one is that it bifurcates attribution across channels. Basically, if Google, app, if Google is saying, hey, we're counting these attribution as ours, these installs as ours based on our models, that same install could be attributed somewhere else in a last click model and generally is and will be. And so you're basically double paying, you could potentially be double paying for those installs if they're attributed last click to a different channel and then Google saying, hey, this is ours, we're charging you for it. We need to be able to compare these channels, all channels, including the SANS, like Google, uh, apples to apples. Um, one thing to note is this is not this is going to be turned on by default in October, but you'll be manually able to switch the attribution rules back to last touch or one of their other rule-based attribution models. This is something we're probably going to recommend for all of our clients is once this goes through in October, switch to last touch. So you continue to measure attributions, apples to apples. Um, I'm sure you have hot <laughs> opinions here, Warren. Do you have, do you have, do you have thoughts? Yeah, I, I hate this. I hate this so much for, for multiple reasons. So you, you touched on um, one of the main things here, Xander, which is like, <laughs> like to do our jobs as growth marketers, we need to be measuring everything with the same measuring stick. And that's, you know, historically, that's been the role of MMPs in the ecosystem to have a neutral arbiter to judge everything with the same set of rules. We're moving into an era where we have, you know, Apple search telling you from their lens, how many installs they've claimed using their logic, not talking to Google over here, who's using their set of log logic and telling you how many users that they've claimed. And both ecosystems and any other ecosystems that adopt this are all incentivized to essentially claim and attribute and bill for any install they can validly have a, a, a shot on goal with. And there's no incentive and no methodology to compare and say, oh, actually, we're talking to Apple and you know what, they claim this user, so we're not going to claim them. And so we hate this for multiple reasons. And this is not just theory. Like we're already seeing this bake out like in some of the Google traffic we've tested on iOS where it's just like the, the percentage of installs that they claim with their internal metrics versus what we see with the neutral measurement of the MMP is just wildly different. It's like four um, times off, three, between yeah, three and five times off. In yeah. So yeah, we, we hate this. Um, it's going to be bad news for the industry and it's just going to make measurement a real mess for people in the, the short run. Any thoughts here, Mark? It just it, it, it reminds me of, of when Google moved to UAC, uh, mm, or whatever the name absolutely. is today. Yep. It's like <clears throat> we're we know how to spend your money better than you do. So just give us your money and and you know, we'll allocate it and we're not gonna tell you how it's happening. And now yeah. it's the thing on the measurement side. Uh, you know, I, I, I do believe people are increasingly mistrusting of Google and 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 Facebook and and you know the 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 these 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 behemoth companies. Um and and I I don't think this furthers any, any, uh, or reinforces any trust, uh, matters. It actually just makes it, makes you more skeptical of, of their motivations. And, um, certainly to your point, uh, you know, you need a single source of truth, uh, when you measure uh, things across different platforms. And this makes it very hard to have that, which is, uh, I think it's disadvantageous to, to anyone that's trying to, to, to be smart about, um, about measurement. Yeah, UAC is the perfect analogy here. Like when you, I believe, you know, if my memory serves me, when UAC first rolled out, it was just an alternative way to run campaigns. And then it became the only way. And in the same way that this is uh, like the default measurement, but you can turn it off. I think it, it I would be shocked if be um, three months from now, it's not just the mandatory and only way that you can yeah. run, run campaigns. It's 100% what's going to happen.
for, for, you know, for the benefit of, of the developers listening to us, is there any ability to, to have both measurement systems running in parallel uh, to sort of a, a compare the results? So in other words, like you said, you can change the settings one or the Thank other. You, yeah. Can you actually do both simultaneously and then make your own decisions about, you know, which, which one do you think is more accurate? So this is going to be surprising to anyone who follows the show. I'm going to compliment Apple. Um, scan actually gives you the ability to do this if it works correctly, when it works correctly. Because mm -hmm. scan is, is Apple's last click attribution methodology. So what that basically says is you can look at what Apple's telling you versus what Google's telling you, and Apple will only attribute every install once. And when we do that now, and when we do this in the future, what you're going to see 100% of the time is Google is severely overclaiming the amount of insults that they're attributing to themselves. So yes, and okay. you should. Yeah. Shall cool. we go on to the next uh, next story? Let's do it. So next article is Facebook entitled, it's a market marketing mobile reads article entitled Facebook pauses work on Instagram kids amid backlash. Here's a quote. Facebook, which has received harsh criticism from lawmakers and users for its plan to develop an Instagram for kids, announced on Monday that it's pausing its work on the project. Head of Instagram said that the company is pausing to work Let's work so that it can listen to concerns and put more effort into demonstrating the value of the children's version, which would be ad-free and allow parents to monitor their children's activities. The app is meant for kids ages 10 to 12. Uh, so this comes on the back of the Facebook files, which is a series of articles by the Wall Street Journal that came out over the previous weeks, really, really detailing in intricate detail how Facebook knew the impact of many of their worst practices and continued them anyway, and also were like aggressively dis, uh, suppressing dissent for people who were uh, whistleblowers internally. Um, so, you know, Facebook has obviously been uh, facing mounting regulatory pressure over the last several years to, in regards to many, many of their abusive and uh, business practices. And so this isn't altogether surprising that we don't trust them with kids. Um, I guess... The main thing here is they actually haven't said that they're going to cancel it. <laughs> so they're still working on this. It's just being paused in terms of rollout. So expect to see this again. The question is when. Uh, I guess, Mark or Warren, any thoughts here? Yeah, it seems like they're just waiting for the heat to die down. Exactly. They've, just had, they've just had the, a hellish couple of weeks for bad press for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, you know, uh, I think that I listened to a podcast um, with Shamath Palihapitiya, who, who was an executive at Facebook for a long time. And, and he it's talked about, in. yeah, and, and that's all in. Yeah, yeah um, it's a good podcast. I don't, not that they need extra, uh, extra uh, promotion by any yeah. means, but, um, you know, he, he, he talked about the, this technology that, that actually is engineered to create, you know, biochemical responses in the brain. Uh, and how that can become, you know, how you can, how you can compare that to nicotine, for example. And, right. and um, you know, the idea that, that they're trying to move <laughs> into younger and younger kids to get them hooked on this stuff uh, you know, earlier in their lives is, is really alarming uh, as a wow. parent of a, of a two and a half year old. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we don't put her in front of screens for, for some of these reasons. But, um, you know, I, I think uh, the longer they pause it, the better uh, from my perspective. Yeah. And, and a lot of the execs of these companies don't put their kids in front of screens either, which should be telling. Yeah, it's cool. the same as the Steve Jobs story with the iPad. You know, he, he, he didn't want his kids in front of an iPad. And, uh, you know, there's uh, there's a Matt Levine is this great writer about public markets, uh, Bloomberg, and, and he wrote today about insider trading. And it's impossible for an insider not to know more information than the public markets. And so this idea about insider trading, I think about it in the same way with, um, you know, with, with screens or with Facebook, it's impossible for people inside of these organizations um, not to know more about 
you know, the, the, the harms potentially. Uh, and that makes you really concerned when, when some of those people, those executives are, you know, aggressively keeping their kids away from the technology that they're actually trying to bring uh, to that same age uh, kid that's in someone else's house. Right. And you touched on a great point with uh, Shamas, uh, Mark, and we, we, there's not a good track record of high level execs leaving Facebook and talking about, oh, no, actually, they're doing really great work behind the scenes, <laughs> yeah. advancing society. It's yeah. uh, a lot of evangelists um, kind of in, uh, opposed to some of the internal. Yeah, there's that, that board, one of the early board members who's like made it his life's work to to fight against Facebook. Now, I, I, I Kara Swisher interviewed him a year or two ago on her podcast, I think. And uh, I can't think of his name, but yeah. Uh, was that the, people, the guy that was featured a lot in The Social Dilemma in that documentary? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, which is worth checking out. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, let's keep moving. We're going a little bit long here, but just one last quick article. This is a venture beat article entitled entitled Netflix acquires its first game studio and deal with oxen free creator night school studio the company is night school studio. All right. So basically the, <laughs> Netflix acquired the studio um, called night, night school studio. They haven't disclosed the price It's a 21 person studio, which doesn't have an explicit focus on mobile and which is an interesting takeaway because this, this is a, um, a cross-platform developer, and it really shows that the Netflix ambition is much broader than the mobile ambition, which is something they sort of hinted at. This might be a mobile-focused uh, game initiatives, but it's actually a much broader initiative. Um, however, separately than that, they're also pushing heavily into the mobile uh, mobile gaming space. They've launched three new titles in the EU, Shooting Hoops, uh, Teeter Up, and Card Blast in f- uh, specific EU markets, and they're testing members-only gaming service in Poland. So... Netflix has Zion Gaming. They're coming for you. I would not be dismissive of re- anyone who's dismissive of Netflix is not paying attention to the track record. This should worry anyone who's in the space, or at least should be tracking it. Do you have thoughts? Is this just going to be the better version of Apple Arcade? I Maybe, honestly. It kind of seems like that's what it's setting up for. Um, I was just skimming through uh, you know, Oxenfree's first, uh, that, that Oxenfree title, and it seems like it's like kind of a narrative, like interactive fiction um, really high production value game, which makes a lot of sense when you think about what people are coming to Netflix for. They're not coming there for like, you know, Twitch, Twitch style gameplay. Um, but that also is a, a kind of kind of gameplay that you could imagine sitting down and interacting on your TV, right. you know, not just on, on mobile and taking that experience cross, cross platform. Um, and the problem with Apple Arcade is not necessarily the quality of content, but it's just getting getting adoption there. So when you already holding have, people because they have yeah. tons of users, it's just they churn rate is like thirty three percent month too, which is crazy. Right. Yeah. So it's almost like an Amazon Prime play um, with uh, Netflix adding gaming, where it's just like increasing the value proposition of being a Netflix customer. And um, I see this, you know, maybe just there's not a ton of wind in the sails of Apple Arcade, but but further um, offering consumers potentially more compelling uh, alternative as they, you know, launch their game component, just because they're already there. You know, yeah. if I have access to 200 games over time that I can play for being a Netflix customer, the value prop of getting another 200 from becoming Apple Arcade customer gets less and less. Yeah. I mean, Apple will be fine. I'm more worried about any developers, <laughs> right? Maybe uh, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Well, you, this, could think, be, this could be a boon for them. As I've gotten to know more indie devs that are developing for Apple Arcade, it's, it's kind of cool because it gives them another kind of other realms of gameplay that could be monetized that couldn't be monetized as like traditional free-to-play apps. So right. it, could, it could potentially mean good things for free-to-play developers making, making or sorry, for indie developers, like making high quality games if these um, subscription platforms get more traction. Right. Any thoughts, Mark? 
Um, yeah, I mean, look, all these platforms are fighting for your time and your engagement, right? And, and it makes perfect sense that if they have a tremendous amount of content and distribution that, you know, gaming is a, is a core element of, of, of people's attention. So <clears throat> the idea that it could be more beneficial for indie developers, I, I, I can see that as, as, a, as a potential positive. Uh, you know, a lot of these companies um, don't want to necessarily focus on um, on user acquisition or monetization for that matter. You know, they, they actually want to focus on the gameplay and like the core elements of gameplay, um, you know, and, and, and storytelling, um, you know, if, to the extent that those true de developers, all they want to do is just build really rich um, uh, experiences for users and not worry how to, how to monetize every last, uh, you know, click and, and um, you know, how to distribute to millions of people on, on Facebook, for example. Um, you know, I, I, I see an argument that this could be just a, a benefit generally for, for that, you know, mid-market and, and, and long-tail developer. Cool. Well, we went a little long. Let's uh, jump into our main segment. Yeah, Mark. So uh, really excited to have Mark on the show today. And we're going to get into a topic that I think has been important to a lot of the partners that we work with, because we tend to work with a lot of developers that are in the process of, of their first big phase of growth. Um, and one thing that's always a question in that is, is you know, how, are we, how are we funding this growth? Um, so today we're going to dig into, you know, the user acquisition funding ecosystem, the different ways that developers can approach that, you know, Mark's company Bravo is a key player in this. And um, we want to talk into some of the pros and cons of different models, some of the risks that maybe aren't uh, thought about, you know, when, when entering the mobile uh, funding, UA funding ecosystem, and kind of just break that all down, because it's a topic that we haven't heard really discussed a lot. So um, uh, Mark, you want to tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what Bravo does and your, your function in the mobile ecosystem? Sure. Yeah. So uh, thanks for the intro. And again, thanks for having me uh, on, on the podcast. Um, you know, certainly happy to, to partner with you guys uh, with the shared clients that we have, uh, you know, to, to, to further uh, their success. And, and, you know, really my co-founder and I got together in 2015 and, and, you know, we saw an opportunity to build a business that sort of challenged some of the existing paradigms on how you fund and grow technology companies. Uh, and so uh, our idea was that, you know, more and more the costs of building technology companies um, was migrating from R&D to distribution. Uh, and a distribution and, and sort of marketing around distribution, right? Uh, and the more you spend on marketing, um, the more measurable outcomes can be for, for these businesses. And historically, tech companies, uh, mobile games or, or casual games, whatever, whatever types of games or subscription apps or anything in between, they would have to raise a lot of equity to get a product into the market, uh, to test that product and, and hope at some point in the future uh, to make money. And, and you know, even in 2015, it was obvious that you, know, you could get a product into the market and start growing it and scaling it without a tremendous amount of equity but you needed money not for R&D and for product development, but for spending on marketing to acquire right. those users to scale. Uh, you can't optimize a product until you have enough users flowing through it. How do you get the users to flow through that product to build those optimizations downstream to retain them? Well, you have to spend on marketing. Uh, and so when we launched Bravo, the idea was um, if we can use real-time business data to measure a company's performance, uh, we can provide risk-adjusted funding against that performance. And risk-adjusted means we understand the risk, so therefore we can take a smaller cut of the upside, right? right. Um, equity investment is taking a massive cut of the upside. They're taking a chunk of, of every company. And so equity investors are hoping for 10X or 100X returns on every, every dollar they deploy, right? If they give you 
10,000 bucks, they want a million back, right? Uh, if we give you 10,000 bucks, we want uh, a few thousand back, right? Uh, and, and, and the difference there is it's a nonlinear risk model. And so our, our business was built around understanding the risk of deploying capital to these companies that generally is getting spent on marketing uh, and charging much less for it than an equity investor would charge. Um, that was a little bit long-winded, but you know, sort of that, that's a fundamental idea that we had, which was use real-time business data sales data, revenue data, payout data, uh, analytics on product engagement, retention, and marketing data from, you know, at the time was primarily Facebook spend um, to provide funding to companies that needed it to grow their business. Uh, and our funding is totally non-dilutive, so we never take a, any piece of equity, no warrants. Um, we can talk a little bit about different pricing and structuring elements of different types of funding, but really what we wanted to do was create a platform for on-demand funding uh, where the costs were really, really well understood, uh, much cheaper than equity, and, and allow companies to control their own future uh, without having to raise money uh, from investors that might tell them how to run their business or might can sort of influence decisions down the road. Um, and, and that's sort of the, the foundational elements of, of, of what we started to build. And we focused on the mobile ecosystem because we felt like that was a massive growth space. And because of these platforms, these sort of distribution platforms uh, and, and publication platforms, the app stores, for example, lots of that business data was accessible through integrations. Uh, and right. that was the one unique element of it that's very different than traditional businesses that you know they have distributed systems for measurement. Uh, we had these platforms, right? We had Facebook, we had Apple, we had Google, uh, and a handful of analytics leaders. And with integrations with, let's say, 10 platforms, we could address the needs of 80% of the market, for example. Um, and so that's kind of the business. And, and you know, we've grown now uh, over the past six, seven years, uh, you know, we've deployed billions of dollars to our customers, uh, customers in 25 plus countries. We're funding in five currencies. Uh, we offer a few different non-dilutive funding products, depending on the company's needs and their business mm -hmm. model. We can talk a little bit more about that. Um, but, you know, a, a good a good proportion of the money that we that we are funding our customers is, is getting spent on user acquisition, uh, because that's really sort of the, the still the core key element of, of growth and scaling in the mobile space. Right. Yeah, and just for a little context, I got to know Mark and Bravo through actually one of one of our clients having conversations with them about um, you know gaining additional funding. And one thing that I really appreciate about your in your team's approach, Mark, is like um, the how clean your connection is to view uh, the same data that us on the UA side are are seeing and to have conversations about that same data. Like I found it's very practical. And we're we're speaking the same language as far as like like looking at you know payback periods of of the investment of the app, looking at how cohorts mature, um, and that's been very refreshing versus um, some of the other models that we've we've seen in the space. Just like how how accessible it is and just sort of how how practical it is, and and just like success means the same thing kind of for for both both teams, which is something that we've appreciated. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we believe really thoroughly in alignment with our customers, uh, you know, mutual alignment on success. You know, we don't grow unless our customers grow. You know, uh, when we're charging small amounts on the dollar, uh, you know, we need to need deploy a lot of money over time with growing customers and both we and our customers will be successful in that regard. And, and um, you know, like you, you talk about sort of the looking at the same data, that was like one of the fundamental elements of our hypothesis for building our business was information asymmetry is what has made it challenging in history to deploy low risk or low cost capital to companies that need it. It's information asymmetry. You know, 
there's a uh, millions and millions of SMBs, hardware stores, and, and landscaping companies all over the country. They're using different accounting systems, different payment systems. Uh, you know, their accounting might not be reliable. And so there's this massive information asymmetry makes it harder to provide low cost funding to these companies. Right. We wanted to create information symmetry. And in and, and doing that, you know, we can deploy capital at scale and our customers can get access to that fund, that those funds in an affordable and seamless way. And, and then again, that goes back to the alignment. So, um, you know, our, our, our idea is, you know, we want to be making decisions about funding uh, using the same information that our customers are making about spending. And, and, if, and if those decisions are aligned, if the logic about making those decisions aligned, our customers are making good decisions, the funding is informed by the same information, uh, and, and that kind of should, in theory, work for both sides. Right. Yeah, and this is a major pain point for the ecosystem. If I, if I think about why people come to Uptick asking for our, our, our help on the services side, and we aren't able to provide them help, it's one of basically two reasons. One, their Aptis isn't good enough to support um, to support high-scale UA, and two, if they don't have any money, or they don't have enough money to scale in, in a right. really sustainable pattern. And obviously, that's where Bravo and some of their competitors come in, is this ability to provide the funding needed in order to invest in early cohorts, which will pay back over a long period of time. Um, I wanted to sort of pivot there to talk about you and how you how you are a little bit different than some of the other core players in this ecosystem. There are several other people who do something similar to you, which is provide UA funding. Most of them have a slightly different model though. And what I'm thinking about specifically are people like Network, Tilting Point, or even Skills, um, who they provide UA funding, but it's much closer to a traditional publisher model where they're also running user acquisition. However, I know at least, I can think of at least one reason why this is not a great uh, business practice for the, their potential clients. Do you want to talk about the difference between Bravo funding versus some of those other uh, sort of more publisher models of user acquisition funding? Yeah, so I, I can talk a little bit about the decisions that we've made in building our business and why we've made them to 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 to, to be where we are and to do what we do and, and how that may be different from some of these other companies. You know, first of all, we, we always you know advocate for. Uh, our customers to learn uh, how to build their business uh, on their own, uh, and 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 to take uh, accountability for uh, growth and for scaling. Of course, like using agencies when appropriate. Um, but we we want to be the funding partner. Uh, we don't want to tell our customers how to run their business, and that goes back to the difference between uh, traditionally an equity investor that takes a board seat, uh, has control provisions, and really tells these companies how to grow their business. And where we want to be, which is to say, we want to empower you to be successful, but we want to, we don't want to be telling you how or where to spend your money. Um, you know, there's, there's, so, so building on that, uh, you know, where we fit is, is we are technology first funding partner for companies, both in gaming and, and, and subscriptions, um, but we don't offer any sort of um, uh, assistance, formal assistance that we or services as it relates to UA. Now we have partners in the ecosystem. We have companies that have worked with many of our customers that we will gladly refer uh, business. But we do think that there's an important separation of church and state as it relates to being the funding partner and being the company making decisions on how those funds are being spent. Right. And so, you know, the big difference between us and some of the companies you mentioned is, you know, they have in-house agencies or they, they started as agencies, for example. Uh, and, 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 you know, the funding piece and, and you guys hear it from your customers, the funding piece as well. We can give them money, too, and then we can spend it. We can double dip. Right. Ultimately, if you're charging for funding and then you're actually charging for that money to be spent as well, um, you know, you, you can make more money, number one. Um, but there is a really a, a misaligned incentive, in my opinion, um, to to uh, being responsible for spending someone's money, but also charging them for that money. Um, and you know, uh, ultimately, the the beneficiary of, of of those models is the platform itself, 
more so in, in some cases than the companies um, that they are funding. Um, that's not to say there's anything wrong with the business uh, that, that our competitors choose to do. It's just different than, than our philosophical approach to where we should fit in the ecosystem. You know, it, it's funny because you mentioned two, two reasons why uh, you talk to companies that can't work with you. One of them is, uh, you know, they, they, don't, they don't have the money, right? Or their, their, their economics aren't great. Um, and so you want to say, well, if they don't have the money, how do we get them the money? Um, you know, for us, the same thing happened over the years. The biggest, the biggest sort of rebuttal that we get from prospective customers is, well, you know, I love, I love the idea of what you're doing, but I wouldn't know how to spend the money. And so the natural conclusion would be, well, why don't we offer an agency? Right. And we always fell back on this same sort of the values that we had from the start, which is to say, we want to empower these, these developers, these, these publishers to build their businesses, uh, but we don't want to tell them how to do that. And we don't want to be responsible for spending that money because um, ultimately, like, I can't imagine the feeling of charging someone for money and then spending that money uh, at a loss uh, and, and not having any liability on, on me for doing that. I don't want that liability uh, right. emotionally or economically. And I think that a lot of these companies have structured their approach that there isn't much liability there. They're, they're really, um, right. you know, yeah. and, and again, I, I, I don't have a strong negative opinion of anyone else that's trying to build a business the way they see fit. But that's just the, the major difference between Bravo and some of these other platforms is right. Our, our incentives are aligned with the customer success, regardless of where they spend their money or how they spend it. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, any sort of um, sweetheart deals with a particular ad network, um, those don't exist, right? And, and, and if you're working with a, a large a, uh, agency that's providing funding, they may have special deals with the platform where you might not get the best economics, but that's where they're spending it because they get some benefits. And so, again, it, it goes back to separation of, of sort of church and state, state, you know, who is providing the funding versus who is spending it, as well as sort of philosophically where we think uh, the right place to be is for our business. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I think Warren, you're like very close to how some of these deals are structured versus how Bravo structures their deals. Do you want to talk a little bit about the mechanics and like be really concrete about the sort of conflicts of interest that can arise um, when you take one of these other partners' money? Yeah, and uh, sorry, I'm going to get on my soapbox here because this, this is an area that I've... Uh, got strong passionate feelings about because just because we've seen we've had developers come to us that have been burnt in um some of the deals I, and i'm not going to name names here because some of these companies like have had some successful outcomes they've there's some very smart people on these teams um but yeah i am not a big believer in the business models where it's where it's all in and it's also the team that's that's doing the ua and on a surface level it might seem like well they've got more skin in the game so um you know interests are aligned but what we've seen, and um, you know, we we have clients in our portfolio that have left you know damaged relationships from working with some of these these entities, and what we see at the end of the day is what I call like vampirism. Of there's there's the funding component, and uh, the the entity that's lending the money is ultimately over time. Let, let me take a step back here. Like when when Uptick is operating marketing, we're measuring specifically the efficacy of our marketing efforts. Have our marketing efforts been profitable for our client? And that's what we're really maximizing. With these all-in entities, it's a it's a heads we win, tails you lose scenario. Where if if this if the ad spend is profitable, cool, they keep scaling it. Um, but if it's not, what we have seen in the data that we've we've uh, been privy to is that marketing spend is just ramped down until the kind of all-in looks profitable. But what's happening is, you know, a dollar is being spent. The only ten cents might be made back off of that dollar. But there's all the organic users that exist anyway that had nothing to do with the marketing. 
but are being counted in the all-in returns that that company is reporting on. So you've kind of made a deal with the devil in some of these situations. If it's not a really proven user acquisition team um, that's had repeated success, where you're giving away a major slice of all of your users, not just the users that this company has brought in for you, all of them, all the organic users that had nothing to do with this company. And it's a if you actually do the math, like it, there's less pain up front, right? Because you're, you know, someone else is is absorbing the cost of ad spend, but you're mortgaging a huge huge portion of your company's overall business, not just the business that's affected from marketing. So I think it's a risk that's not really talked about in the space, um, but something that we've seen uh, kind of comes out in the wash from these engagements where the company also insists on having their people manage the ad spend for you and make those business decisions. Well, and some of these companies are set up so that they have basically first dollar out. So basically you, they don't give, you don't get the develop it depends on the, the company and there's a couple of different ways to use the structure but some of these are basically the developer won't get any cash until the company's made its marketing dollars back which basically means that you can just forever invest and just take all the revenue that's being generated by a game and basically they be, yeah it's like sort of like a leech where you're just like sucking off all the revenue from these companies and you can put another dollar in and then get it back out before these people ever see any money and, and i know at least one of these companies has their deal structured like that yeah and and what i would say and sorry this will be the last part of my my uh soapbox here is i don't want to speak ill of all these companies we don't know the ins and outs of all of them i would just say really if you're looking into one of these engagements do real diligence and a couple of things to look for have they worked with the same clients on multiple successful launches? Like, have they had repeat successes? And can you talk to that client and talk to them about the, you know, the overall profitability of that engagement for them? Um, and I think that's something to really kick the tires for. And, and also just seeing like in that roster of clients, have there really been like runaway successful titles that have been scaled and, and achieve these big wins through the marketing efforts? Um, and really do that diligence, ask to speak to someone who's worked with them before, um, if you can get a hold of a client who's maybe churned and not continue to work with that company, you know, find out, find out why, and just, just make sure to really cover your bases before going into these, uh, agreements. Yeah. Yeah. yeah look, <clears throat> some, some developers want to delegate, uh, decision-making, uh, for a variety of elements of their business to, uh, to other people. Uh, and it's convenient for them to do that. And, and this goes back to our conversation earlier about, you know, the Netflix, um, you know, gaming, uh, platform. Uh, but, but the reality is the more control you give to someone else, um, about decision-making and, uh, you know, uh, outcomes, uh, and, 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 you know, the devil's in the detail when it comes to the legal language, um, the more trouble you can get into. And, 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 you know, again, the, uh, an important takeaway here is, um, is that engagement for the benefit of your business to be successful? Or like, who, who, who is perceived as the success story? Is it the platform or the, the platform's customers? You know, and, and that's, again, going back to our approach, and, and you can see this in our marketing, we don't talk about ourselves too much, we talk about our customers, because that's, you know, we, we want them to be successful, we want them to be the household names, you know, we're okay being in the background, and I think um, some of the other platforms, their, their focus is on um, a means to an end of, of their, 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 their own presence uh, versus the presence of their, their customers uh, and the success of those customers. Um, again, uh, different, different solutions for different needs, um, but uh, that's, that's the way we think about it. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, so we're getting a little bit tight on time. Do you want to talk about, I mean, UA gaming UA, uh, mobile UA and ga gaming space is like very, very competitive. What are some advice you would give to up and coming mobile developers and publishers? Oh gosh. Uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I got um, like... <laughs> you know, 
I, you know, I, I, let me let me talk a little bit about you know funding broadly and and, and raising funds and and um, how that ties back to your question. Yeah, that's uh, what I was going to say. Like, wh when is yeah. the right time for a developer to think about these things and the right yeah. time to act? On these yeah, things? and 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 I think that this goes beyond just funding for UA. It goes it goes into business strategy. Uh, right. And and, and the, the the key question I think that we we push on our customers to ask themselves. Uh, and, I, and even separate from Bravo, you know, I, I've been in the startup world for a long time. I, I've, I've advised companies, I've invested as a, individually. Um, the question I, I like to start with is, what are you trying to build? What are you trying to accomplish? How do you define success for yourself as an individual and for your company and for your team? And that definition of success can be a lot of different things. You know, we, we have some customers who want to be lifestyle businesses. They want to run their business. They want to take Fridays off. Uh, you know, they, they want to surf in the mornings, uh, they want to ski in the, in the winters and, you know, they're okay with not massive scale, but with like profitability and sustainability of their business. Right. Um, that's one definition of success. You're not going to read about them in TechCrunch, um, right. but you know what, that like, they're very happy and they're successful. Uh, other others for others, it's, it's about building a unicorn. Um, whether that is ego-driven or, or, or mission-driven, you know, like a kid's education app where they, they want to impact the, the ability for kids to learn all over the world. And, and, and you know, if, if that also includes becoming a unicorn, great. But like, it, it, you know, whatever the definition of success is for the founders, for their teams and, and, and for, for their, their organizations and themselves personally, that's the first question, right? Before you take funding of any kind, what am I looking to build? Because if you're looking to build a, a decent sized company, but you don't have any aspirations of working hundred hours a week for the next three or four years and, and, you know, jeopardizing personal professional relationships to achieve this massive outcome. That's probably not a great idea to try to raise a ton of equity uh, because right. ultimately the expectations uh, are, are increased by an order of magnitude as soon as you take other people's money. Right. Um, and particularly as, as it relates to equity uh, you know, that's okay. Again, that, that if, if your definition of success requires massive amounts of equity, well, that's the path that you take. Um, if your definition uh, definition of success is to build a sustainable business, well, then you should be much more selective about any type of funding, right? Because as soon as you take any type of funding, you have obligations to others, right? Uh, now that could be bank funding, uh, often which requires like a personal guarantee. Um, that means you as an individual are responsible if your company can't fulfill its obligations. That's usually like what bank funding is for small and, and early stage companies. Um, or you can work with a partner like Bravo that is non-dilutive funding. Um, we generally don't require personal guarantees. We utilize our insight, our knowledge about the market, our data to inform our funding decisions and, and relieve founders of personal liabilities for uh, performance against their obligations. Now, that doesn't mean we, we're hoping that some people don't pay us back. Of course, we, we, <laughs> we expect to, to get repaid, um, but the level of commitment uh, you know, is different on, on, on both sides. And, and again, when you raise money from equity investors, they expect you to kill themselves, but they also are very invested in your business and should be very involved. Um, you know, we want our customers to find their own success. We are here to be supportive. We've built really complex analytics for the benefit of our customers that we give away for free, but we're not going to get involved in their daily decision-making. Um, and, you know, the question of when is the right time to raise money is when you see an opportunity to spend money is the right time to raise money if you're comfortable with the trade-offs that go along with that. And those trade-offs are really what you need to understand. Is a trade-off a personal liability? Is a trade-off some portion of your future revenue to repay what you owe, which is our model. You know, we take some portion of future revenue to get repaid. Um, are you willing to give away that future revenue in order for the opportunity to spend that money today? 
um, you know, or, or do you want to sell a chunk of your company? And, and, you know, like some people might say your soul to really large pocketed investors um, to achieve some massive dream. Um, and, you know, going back on that, like, what is it you're trying to achieve that that may change over time too. So you should constantly ask yourselves and your partners, what do you want to build? What are you trying to build? And, and, and what do you believe success is? And maybe that success definition evolves. And that also should inform an evolving perspective on funding. You know, um, for most companies, there isn't one solution. You know, we think about it as, as a capital stack, right? Um, we'll hear from a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly US-based entrepreneurs. Oh, I don't need this. I just need, you know, more equity. Uh, right. and, and, you know, that's, you know, great. If you can get more equity, more power to you, if that's what you're, if that's the way you want to build your business. But if you can raise some other form of non-dilutive funding, um, like what we can offer at Bravo, uh, chances are you'll extend the lifetime of the equity that you've raised. You'll hit better metrics, you'll improve your valuation, and you can raise less money the next time and give away less of your company. So, so really it's about defining success, reevaluating your definition of success over time. And if you see an opportunity to spend money to achieve some goal uh, that, that aligns with that success, well, then just find the right solution, the right type of capital to meet that, that goal for success. And oftentimes there are multiple types of capital that you need over different times. Um, that's probably long-winded and I didn't give a really clear specific answer, but I think it's to each his own. Um, and, and there isn't a right solution for any one developer, any one publisher. Uh, you need to figure out what you're trying to build for yourself as an individual, for your team, for your partners, whoever they may be, um, and make sure you reevaluate that every time you consider taking funding of any kind how are we going to spend this money? Is it going to get us to where we want to be? Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, put it a different way. You basically need to understand your goal and your risk and understand all the instruments and tools that you have. Yeah. Like I think for most developers, the thing that's not, the thing that's stopping them from scaling profitably is, is not that they, they don't have funds. It's that they haven't like built the proof of concept. And mm -hmm. our advice to developers is, is, you know, don't be in a hurry to get that money. Like, like build a proof of concept, show that you can, do your marketing profitably. And, and this, as, as Mark and Xander are alluding to, know exactly how you're going to spend that money once you get it and know what kind of returns you can expect. That's the time to really pull that lever if you want to have a successful outcome. Yeah. You know, one, one of our first customers and, and um, you know, when I, when I refer to different types of like companies and what their, what their goals are, this is a, a company that was more focused on building a sustainable profitable business and not necessarily going for becoming a unicorn. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to the founder and, and, and he was asking me, well, like, you know, how would you recommend we go about spending this money? Like what, what should we measure against, you know, what platforms? And I said, look, you are a brilliant product person, uh, but you haven't invested the time or the mental energy in figuring out how to, how to scale through marketing. And I said, you need to do that as an individual. You need to figure that out for yourself to give yourself confidence that taking money is the best decision for your business, right? That, that actually taking more money to spend more money makes sense. You need to prove that to yourself. And, and I think a lot of times there's, there, there are, particularly in the earlier stages, it's very aspirational. Like I wanna do this, but I'm not willing to commit my time or my energy to figuring out how to do it. And so I'm hoping that somebody else will tell me how to do it or somebody else will give me the tools to do it. Um, there, there is a, a personal accountability. And, and, uh, and I think that that's really important here is, is to figure it out for yourself um, before you are comfortable committing to anyone else um, uh, as to like, you know, what sort of obligations that you might have to take on in order to do that. Uh, and, and, you know, the cool thing is about that company is after that conversation, the guy went dark on me for six months. And then he, and then he pinged me on Skype six months later, Hey, I'm ready for the money. Yeah, <laughs> we're scaling. Here, here's a screenshot of, of our growth. You know, we're ready for the money now. And that was really rewarding. Cause like, 
I didn't do anything. He did it all. You know, yeah. that's, that's that, that, you know, that's the point. Awesome, Mark. Well, that was super helpful. And I really think that a lot of our developers in a state, all of listeners are developers and publishers that are in a stage that this advice is really going to be helpful to them. So really appreciate all your insights here. Uh, we're going to transition to our last section, uh, app of the week. Did, Mark, did you bring an app this week? <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, I love the Starbucks app. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, you, you don't, you don't have to share that, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 that, that is my, mo- I, I was, I was actually thinking about it. I was like, the app that I use the most is Starbucks, uh, for better or for worse, um, uh, or toast for ordering, which is like indicative of, of having a two and a half year old and not spending a lot of time on, on apps for, for fun, uh, but more for productivity and, and, and accomplishing things. Um, but you know, I, I, I do, uh, over the years I've, uh, the apps that I've, that I've gone back to over and over again, um, you know, I'll, I'll plug one of our customers, 10% happier. Um, I do, I do believe in, in mindfulness and, and, and meditation and 10% happier is, um, you know, one of the market leaders, they've been a customer of, of ours for a long time. And I really value when I can allocate my time to do, to, 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 to mindfulness, um, you know, it, it, it's super beneficial. Yeah. I mean, the Starbucks app is kind of interesting because I was reading some article recently that it's basically a banking app. I think they have something like oh, yeah. $600 million in Absolutely. consumer cash. It's just sitting in Starbucks app it's, accounts. So that's they, brilliant. They, they have the float that they have on your deposits is incredible. Uh, it is, it is a, per, is it a, it, fundamentally it is a, is a, it is a finance app and, and Starbucks makes a tremendous amount of money on, on, you know, the, the, the arbitrage of your deposits sitting there and then getting spent and, and ultimately you're spending. So it's like, they're double dipping, right? Yeah, you're money, they're making money on your money and then, and then you're spending it on, you know, at a Starbucks, it's incredible. And, and um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an innovation where I'm sure Howard Schultz, when he, you know, started Starbucks, uh, he didn't think, well, we're going to have be, we're going to build financial tools to, to make all this money elsewhere. It's like AWS, right. is a huge contributor to Amazon's revenue. Um, this is a, you know, a new element of the business model. I love the Starbucks app for a totally different reason, which is that I'm, I'm, I'm very picky and I got a weird vegan diet, but I also don't want to be a horrible human being to people working in the service industry as, as I have in the past. So the same reason I love the Taco Bell app is I can like, you know, perfectly customize my order and make it just so, uh, but it's just, you know, it just comes out clearly in a computer for someone. It's not like me um, making someone miserable behind the counter, yeah. making the person behind me line miserable, like, yeah, like oh, can you do half this and two pumps of this? And, <laughs> yeah. It just lets me hide my shame within, when the app, within the app, picky order. I just like the about- gold stars that bounce around when you get enough rewards. Yeah. Xander, what, what, what are your favorite apps? Yeah, Xander, what you got this week? Okay, so mine is actually a recommendation from you. So uh, Warren is in my uh, cryptocurrency Sherpa over the last several months that I sort of fumble in that space. He's been spending a lot more time in it than I have. Um, But one of the things I've been looking to do is just find a better way to trade coins in the short term. And one of the ones that you recommended and that I've switched over to, at least for partial part of my portfolio, is Coinbase Pro. So Coinbase Pro is basically Coinbase, but uh, a full-fledged trading platform. It has also basically anything that Coinbase supports, you can uh, you can support in the Coinbase Flow, but they're, they let you do uh, limit buys and uh, limit sells, as well as it has really good trending tools and order flows and all sorts of other things that help you really just get a much, much broader understanding of what's going on in the market and a better, more robust set of tools of actually setting up and trading um, within that Coinbase ecosystem. One of the main complaints is obviously just they don't support everything. And so there are some constraints there and there's also no staking, but obviously it's not designed as that tool. It's designed as a trading tool. So that's why I like Coinbase Pro. Any thoughts from you guys? Uh, I don't have Coinbase Pro. Uh, most of my 
trading in, in, in the crypto world is with NFTs. And as of, nice. as of now, uh, OpenSea just launched an app, I believe, but you can't buy and sell NFTs. You can only like see. Uh, so that doesn't have any functionality for me. But um, as soon as a, an app comes out where I can buy and sell and organize my NFTs and understand the value, uh, I will be an active user of that. Oh man, now Mark, now Mark, yeah, I want a whole nother hour with you. Wait, to wait, go just what, name, give us a project. What's your biggest project? Well, I have a board ape, uh, which Damn. most people have never had. So, um, <laughs> Congrats on getting in on that one. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, that was a good purchase uh, a few months ago. Uh, I really like Zed Run, which is uh, yeah. digital horse races. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I made a small investment in the company through, through an Angelus syndicate a while back, but I had already bought a few horses. Uh, my wife and I love horse racing. Like we used to live in New York City and we went to the Belmont and saw American Pharaoh win the Triple Crown. And, and uh, you know, we go to Saratoga, which is a great spot. But uh, Zed Run is recreating horse racing the entire industry from end to end, you know, and, and it's empowering uh, you know, this ecosystem of, of breeding and racing, you could, you can have gambling and wagering against uh, those races. Uh, you can hire stable hands, you know, like the, the, everything that the existing horse racing industry encompasses uh, in terms of jobs and, 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 um, and, and sort of economic incentives and ecosystem, it's being recreated on the blockchain. And, and so in terms of like active user of, of NFTs as definitely the area where I, uh, I really enjoy and I'm, I've been digging into it. Um, intellectually, it's really interesting to understand yeah. uh, you know, genetic algorithms and, and things like that as well. Yeah, we got to do the play to earn roundtable podcast soon and have Mark yeah. be part of that. I, I, I'm going to hold my tongue here because there's so much I want to dig into. But yeah, Zed Run's a great project. Um, so well, so you, do, you have, do you have any NFTs? Oh, oh yeah, God. it's going to take an hour. Yeah, <laughs> let's come back but, to this. All right, we'll actually schedule. And, and there's a few people who have talked about this. We'll bring a bunch of people on. We'll do a roundtable. We'll invite you, Mark. Yeah, we'll get get Andrew nice. um, back. But, but yes, <laughs> in the short term, um, Warren, do you have an app this week? Yeah, so uh, I, I, I'm keeping it on theme, and I've got another uh, finance themed app today. Actually, Xander, this is a good pairing with yours because uh, this is an app that I've started using, um, kind of in parallel with um, Coinbase Pro and similar kind of more advanced um, crypto buying apps. Uh, so this app uh, is called Dharma Wallet. Um, uh, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this one, um, but the reason that I got into this is um, this is this I would say is a really easier to grok like uh, entry level to buying cryptocurrency and and tying it to your primary bank account. So um, uh, uh, Dharma Wallet is a is a very simple crypto wallet. Um, but it's, I'd say it's very intuitive for a non, uh, for an entry level crypto user. And you just can, you connect it to your bank account and you don't have to like transfer funds and like wait for them to clear or anything. You can just be like, Oh, I want to, I want to buy $50 of Ethereum. And it just goes out of your bank account and buys it in one transaction. Um, and, uh, another reason that I started using it is it's directly connected to the Polygon ecosystem. And I've been, um, uh, playing around more in that ecosystem the last few months with some of their gaming projects. Um, so uh, if anyone who's interacted with like Ethereum as the main Web3 layer, you know that there's a lot of fees like tied to that. Oh, yeah. And so being able to go straight to Polygon was another reason I got into this. And last thing I'll say for it is they have pretty good incentives. Like if you deposit $500, you get like $100 uh, in Ethereum for free. So just something I've been trying out. It's a lot easier for just sort of like your casual, like, oh, I see like, you know, Ethereum's down today. I want to buy a hundred bucks and you don't, you know, don't want to jump through a bunch of hoops. So that's my I'll, pick I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't used that. It's interesting. Awesome. I will too. Sweet. Well, we went a little long. Um, Mark, before we sign off, uh, where can people get a hold of you? Uh, Mark, M-R-K at getbravo.com. Uh, Bravo, G-E-T-B-R-A-A-V-O, two A's in Bravo. Uh, Mark at getbravo.com. Um, 
or go to our website, getbravo.com, find us on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm sure you can attach my personal info to the, to we, the we will. Uh, description of the, of the podcast and, mm-hmm. and uh, feel, free to, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. You'll find me with my board ape PFP uh, and, and um, that's, that's about it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Mark. This was a really fun episode and a topic, I think, overdue for a deep dive. Uh, as always, the episode today was brought to you by the team at Uptick. So as you probably picked up from other parts of the conversation today here at Uptick, we help uh, mobile app developers grow both through our fully managed service team, basically a bolt-on marketing org. We work with a lot of developers that literally don't have any in-house marketing resources, handle the marketing analytics, the creative development, and all of the user acquisition management. And then we also have some self-service tools, including our ASO automation platform. So if any of that sounds interesting, just reach out to us at uptick.com. You'll probably have me or Xander uh, respond to you, but that's upptic.com and you can just contact us through that page. Awesome. Talk soon.